Thanks for tuning in to the Follow Church weekly message. Our hope and prayer is that you will find this message uplifting and challenging as we seek to follow Jesus in our community for His glory. We're getting back to our Genesis study and we're going to work through and wrap up the book of Genesis. We're beginning in verse 22, reading through to verse 32. Then we have a New Testament text as well, which will be 2 Corinthians chapter 5. But let's read Genesis 32, beginning in verse 22. Would you read along with me? Jacob wrestles with God. That night, Jacob got up and took his two wives and his two female servants and his eleven sons and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. After he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions. So Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, let me go, for it is daybreak. But when Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man asked him, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. Jacob said, please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask my name? Then he blessed him there. So Jacob called that place Peniel, saying, it is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. The sun rose above him as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the Israelites do not eat the tendon attached to the socket of the hip, because the socket of Jacob's hip was touched near the tendon. If you turn with me to the New Testament, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning in verse 14. For Christ's love compels us, because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And because he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Verse 16. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God was making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Amen. This is God's word. God bless you.
wonder, have you ever noticed these days, there seems to be a competition about who can dream up the strangest name for their child. It's particularly prevalent amongst the celebrity population. If you don't believe me, let me give you a few examples. Chris Martin and Gwyneth Paltrow called their daughter Apple. Their second name is Martin, which sounds a lot like Apple Martini. Beyonce and Jay-Z called their child Blue Ivy, so they put a colour and a plant together. Bear Grylls called his son Huckleberry. Kim Kardashian and Kanye West called their child North, which literally makes their child North West. And my favourite one of all time is Michael Hutchins from NXS and Paula Yates, who called their daughter Heavenly Harani Tiger Lily. Celebrities are very creative when it comes to names, but perhaps the strangest name I've ever heard is one that appeared in a newspaper article in the last few months. A Texan lady was mocked by airline employees who posted her daughter's airline ticket online because they felt her name was postworthy. This lady had decided to call her daughter A-B-C-D-E, spelt A-B-C-D-E and pronounced Ab-City. How, would, <laughs> how much would you have to dislike your child to name them that? Can you imagine every conversation that child would have to have for the rest of their life when they have to say their name, particularly on the phone? What is your name? Ab-City. How do you spell that? A-B-C-D-E. Sorry, can you say that again? A-B-C-D-E. That's what I thought you said the first time. You'd be excused for thinking it was a prank call, wouldn't you? And you'd be even more excused or more terrified to ask her her surname. F-J-H-I-J-K or something like that. In 1969, Johnny Cash wrote a song called A Boy Called Sue. Uh, many of you would know it, and the lyrics tell the story that there was a father who decided to leave his father, but he knew one way to make sure that his son grew up tough was to name him Sue, because he knew the ridicule and the teasing he was going to get. And I reckon despite the shock of that Texan mother, ABCDE, or Absidy, is probably the modern equivalent. That little girl will be one tough girl by the time she's an adult. I think we can all agree that names can be silly, but names can also be significant. On Anzac Day, Kim and I took the kids on the ferry from Sorrento to Queenscliff. And while we were waiting to board the ferry in Sorrento, we sat in a cafe and had our morning coffee. And as we were talking, the topic of names came up. And we started to talk about the names that we all have, and we Googled what each of our names mean. And so this morning, I thought I'd share what we found. Uh, the word Williams, which is our surname, means shield or defence of many, which I kind of liked. Luke means bringer of light. And my middle name, I don't feel like I should tell you because it defeats the purpose, but my middle name is Paul and it means humble. <laughs> Kim means bold family. And Adele, her middle name, means noble or kind. Adele, our oldest daughter, her name means noble or kind. And her middle name, Louise, means a renowned fighter or warrior. And her other middle name, Karen, means pure. Taylor uh, means Taylor. And Jennifer, her middle name means fair one. Annika, our youngest daughter, her name means grace. And her middle name is Diaz, and that means days, grace days. Lenny means bold lion, and his middle name means bringer of light. And our black and white miniature bull terrier is called Darcy, and his name means dark one, which we thought was very appropriate. <laughs> 
Those names all seem very significant. I said to Kim, what if we were to prophetically pray over those names every day for the rest of our lives? That our family would be a shield or defence of many. That I would be a humble bringer of light. That Lenny would be a bold bringer of light. That Kim would lead a bold family in a humble and kind way. That Adele would be a noble, pure and kind warrior. That Taylor would be a person of integrity and fairness and a very good dressmaker. And that Annika would walk in the grace of God all the days of her life. You see, what we speak over our lives can be powerful. David Hale sent me a video this week with a link to a speech made by Denzel Washington to a group of students graduating from university. He told the story of his own life when he was a college student. He was a very average student, student getting extremely poor results. And he was basically flunking out and he was thinking about quitting altogether and joining the army. But on March the 27th, 1975, he was in his mum's beauty parlour. And there was a lady in the salon having her hair rinsed in the basin. And she kept looking at Denzel in the mirror. And eventually she said, grab me a pen and paper. I have a prophetic word. And so she wrote it down. And on this prophetic word, it said that Denzel Washington was going to travel the world and speak to millions of people. Over 40 years later, he has indeed done that. He's travelled the world and he spoke to millions of people. And he said that the words spoken by that stranger on that particular day in the beauty parlour had always stuck with him. And as a result of those words and that encounter, he has kept God in his life and God has kept him humble. He said, I didn't always stick with God, but God has always stuck with me. And I thought to myself as I watched that story this week, I wonder where his life would have gone. If that same lady said, you lazy bludger, get back to uni, you good-for-nothing so-and-so, because your life's going to amount to nothing. I wonder what difference that would have made in his life. Maybe it would have made no difference. Maybe it would have made a profound difference. We don't know. It's kind of one of those sliding door moments. But what I do know is this, that names can be significant and words can be incredibly powerful. Today we read a passage from Genesis 32. We actually restart our Genesis series next week. This is a once-off kind of message. But in Genesis 32, we read about a guy called Jacob. And I think before we launch into his story, it's good to give you a little bit of background about who he was. Most people here would know a character in the Old Testament called Abraham. Abraham is kind of the patriarch of the Old Testament, the man that God promised to bless and build his people through. And Abraham had a son called Isaac. And Isaac married a woman called Rebekah. And when Isaac married his wife Rebekah, she was barren. And so they prayed and they prayed and they prayed. And God eventually opened her womb and they prayed so hard that she conceived not just one, but she became pregnant with twins. And so be careful what you pray for. There's been a baby boom here at Follow in recent months. And I think there's a lot of uh, ladies here, um, either recently or in the past, that would know what it's like to have a baby inside your tummy. Uh, to be sort of kicked and nudged in the ribs and to have the discomfort when you're trying to sleep. And, and I don't know if you've, maybe you're not a, a woman here today, but you've seen a baby in someone's tummy and you can see them moving around and you can see like the, the elbows and the knees and the feet and the hands sort of moving around and kind of looks alien-like. Um, but it's very, very uncomfortable at different times. Well, for Rebecca, she not only had twins in her womb, but they were active twins who were at war in the womb. They didn't like each other before they were even born. In Genesis chapter 25, the Lord said to Rebecca, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, 
and the older will serve the younger. And so it comes time for the birth. And the oldest son, Esau, is born. And man, from the account we see, he is a really hairy kid. He came out really full of hair. As you get older, I just turned 40 recently, as most of you know, this weird thing happens where you can no longer grow hair where you want to, i.e. your head, but it starts to appear everywhere you don't want it. It leaves your head and it transplants out your nose and out your ears and uh, on your back and, and all other places which I won't go into today. Every place imaginable except your head. Now this is a problem for some men, not me of course, um, but for some when they turn 40. Um, but for Esau it was a problem not at 40 years but at 40 seconds. He was a hairy little fella and you get the impression he was nowhere near as handsome as his younger brother. And there was probably some resentment as they grew up, but even when they were born, they didn't seem to like each other. They were fighting each other even in the womb. And it's almost in the account we read in Genesis 32, it's almost like they were fighting to win the race to be born, to compete who was going to come out first. And Esau kind of sees the light and he races for the exit. Um, wish it was that easy, but that's what he did. And he finally got out, um, but he doesn't come out without a fight. Jacob comes out, the second son, and he, it says here that he was grasping at Esau's heel. And so he comes out grasping at Esau's heel. Because of this son being born, grasping his brother's heel, his parents decided it would be a good idea to call him Jacob. Now, Jacob is a reasonably common name today, but it actually means supplanter. It means someone who usurps authority and trips up or overthrows others, which is really an interesting thing to call your son, isn't it? Son's born, what name are we going to call him? You shall be called Supplanter, you little punk. <laughs> Names can be very, very significant. You may have heard people say that you've got to live up to your name. Usually that's a positive thing. You've got a good family name and you're encouraged to kind of live up to your name, the way you behave and the things you do. But it can also be a negative thing depending on the name you've given and particularly when your name means supplanter. Jacob the supplanter or swindler as he grew up started to live out or live up to his name. In the biblical account, we see a trinity of major deceptions in his life and the name he was given appears to impact his life in such a profound way that it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. The first instance in this unholy trinity is when he was about 15 years of age. The older son in this story, Esau, traditionally in that culture was given what is called a birthright. Now, birthright is basically means that they were given a priestly role within their family and they were given a double portion of their parents' inheritance. This clearly is a biblical principle for all time that should never, ever, ever change. And so the application for parents here today is very clear. If you have a firstborn son, double the inheritance. Rubber stamp it now, get it in your will this afternoon and God will say, well done, good and faithful servant. If you forget everything else from this message, do not forget that one thing. Let's close in prayer. <laughs> Esau, as the oldest son, had the birthright, the place of honour, the double inheritance. But when we look at Esau and Jacob, we also see that they had very different personalities. Esau was an outdoors kind of a kid. He loved to go hunting, he loved to go fishing, he probably liked getting dirty. Uh, but Jacob was the, the exact opposite. He was more of a stay-at-home kid who liked cooking with his mum. Have you ever heard the saying, the way to a man's heart is through his stomach? You ever heard that before? 
I think it might have come from Esau. It was definitely true in his life. One day he's out in the field and he comes back into the house and he does what our kids typically do when they come home. What is the first thing they say? I'm starving. I'm starving. In the Western world that means, you know, you have three meals a day in multiple stacks. And so I'm starving means I haven't eaten for 20 minutes and it's getting really urgent. Give me something to eat. It's very serious. Esau goes a step further than our kids do. And he says, I'm so hungry that I'm about to die. And so in this house, in this beautiful aroma, it exists because Jacob has been home with mum cooking his specialty. The Bible tells us it's Jacob's kind of world-famous red stew. And he's cooked up this red stew and Jacob sees an opportunity. He says to Esau, you're hungry and I've got stew, red stew. And you can have some of my red stew. And Esau's like, well, you give me some of your red stew. And he's like, yeah, of course I will. All you need to do is sell me your birthright. And that sounds reasonable, red stew, birthright. You're hungry, I've got stew. Esau in this moment says, yeah, well, that, that makes sense. You know, I am so hungry, I'm about to die. What good is my birthright to me if I'm dead? And so, yes, my place of honour, my double inheritance for one bowl of your red stew in this moment sounds like a very fair deal. And so Jacob the swindler, the supplanter, living up to his name, quick as a flash, produces an agreement, they take an oath, and the trade is complete. You're probably thinking this morning what I'm thinking, I've got to get me some of that red stew. Like, oh, I, really, I really would like some of that amazing stew. It must have been incredible stew, and I'd love some of that for lunch today. So if you cook red stew and you can come and see me after the service, please do so. But I imagine that this is one of those moments for a guy like Esau, where it's instant gratification. The stew is so nice. But at the same time, almost immediately, instant regret. In fact, we know that's true from Hebrews chapter 12. It says, don't be godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. Afterward, as you know, when he wanted to inherit this blessing, he was rejected. Even though he sought the blessing with tears, he could not change what he had done. In Genesis 34, verse 34 of Genesis 25, it says that Esau, uh, from this point onwards, despised his birthright. And so Jacob is becoming a swindler by name, but also a swindler by nature. This is the first great deception recorded in his story. The second one is once again involving Esau. It's a little bit later on in their life when their father Isaac was close to death. In their culture, when the father died, he would pass on a special blessing once again to the firstborn son. This is another timeless, important biblical concept that should never change. Special blessing, double inheritance, firstborn son. Write it down in your notes. But this blessing was a special thing for the firstborn son. And it involved uh, different things. First of all, it involved words of encouragement. The father would give his son words of encouragement about the young man that he is. He would share his final wishes in death. And then finally, he would speak prophetic words over his son for the future. It was a really special privilege for the firstborn son. And so one day when Isaac sensed he was close to death, he called Esau over and he said, come over here, Esau. He said, I am now an old man and I don't know the day of my death. Now then, get your equipment, your quiver and your bow and go out to the open country to hunt some wild game for me. Prepare me the kind of tasty food I like and bring it to me to eat so that I may give you the blessing before I die. Seems like the old man likes stew as much as the son. 
Now, Rebecca, Isaac's wife, overheard the whole conversation. Now, we know in Parenting 101, uh, you should never, ever show favoritism to any of your kids, right? You should love all of your kids exactly the same. They're all precious. They're all loved the same by their parents. Unfortunately, Rebecca never got the memo. And it's clear throughout their lives that she clearly has a favourite. The favourite is not Esau. The favourite is Jacob. She always loved him more than the oldest son. Maybe it was all of Esau's hair. I don't know. Or maybe it was Jacob was a mummy's boy and liked cooking instead of hunting and playing outdoors. We don't really know why. But we do know that Jacob was clearly the favourite. So Rebecca comes up with a plan for Jacob to once again swindle his brother and to get Isaac's blessing instead of Esau. And so... She says to Jacob, I want you to go and get two goats. I'm going to cook up a meal just as your father likes it. You can present the meal to him and he will bless you instead of blessing Esau. Now there was a chance that this could work. This was a reasonable plan because by this stage Esau was very old. Sorry, Isaac was very old and he was virtually blind. And so this plan could potentially work. There was only one obstacle in the way. Can anyone think what that obstacle would be? Hair. The only obstacle in the way was hair. Esau was hairy and Jacob was hairless. And so Jacob says, yeah, good plan, but what if my father touches me? What if he grabs my arms? He's going to know straight away that I'm not the hairy one, that I am not, in fact, Esau, the one he's trying to bless. Rebecca said, yeah, don't worry about that. Here's the plan. We'll make goat stew and then we'll take the skins off, the fur off, and we'll whack those goat skins on your arms which gives us a picture of how hairy Esau was. And if your dad feels your arms and feels those goat skins, he's going to think that you're Esau. And so they go ahead with the plan, and despite some suspicions from Isaac, he's finally convinced, and Jacob once again swindles the blessing from his brother Esau. Now when Esau realises, he's furious. And listen to what he says, going back to the power of a name. He says, isn't he rightly named? Isn't he rightly named Jacob? This is the second time he has taken advantage of me. He took my birthright and now he's taking my blessing. This is the second major deception in the story of Jacob. After that, as you can imagine, Esau was furious. He's probably the stronger brother. He's certainly the more wilder of the two. And he held a grudge against Jacob. Now, we all know that grudges can be very dangerous. They can be dangerous for the people holding it. They can be dangerous for the people that they're holding it against. And in this case, it was very dangerous for both Esau and Jacob. And Rebecca hears, or overhears, that Esau is planning to kill Jacob. And so she pleads with Jacob to flee from their house and go to her brother's house while Esau's fury subsides. And so he takes off and he arrives at Laban's house. And after a while, he's warmly embraced. He finds a home there and he eventually ends up marrying both of Laban's daughters, Leah and Rachel. And over time, he becomes rather wealthy overseeing Laban's flocks. After years of living there, Jacob gets to the point where he wants to return home again, figuring that Esau is probably not quite as angry as he used to be. Maybe his fury has now subsided. And so he tells Laban about his desire to go home, but Laban convinces him or begs him to stay because God had already told him that it was only because of Jacob that he was being blessed. And so Jacob agrees to stay on the condition that Laban gives him all the speckled, and spotty sheep and goats and all the dark-coloured lambs from his flocks and they would be taken as his wages for staying. Now this was good for Laban, he didn't want those ones anyway, they were kind of like the rejects. And so he said, good deal, let's go with that. And so Laban agreed and Jacob stayed. 
But Jacob knew a little trick that he could use to swindle Laban. It was a complicated trick, but essentially it helped breed more spotted and speckled sheep and less pure ones so that Jacob's flock grew and Laban's didn't. And so while Jacob's wealth continued to increase, Laban's wealth diminished. In these stories, we see the character of Jacob. And we see that Jacob lived up to his names. His parents had called him Jacob, the usurper, the swindler. And as you can see, Jacob was swindler by name and swindler by nature. Names can be powerful and names can stick. And he's living up to what people had named him and also to the words that had been spoken over his life. And this is Jacob's life. This is what we read about his story until the day that he meets God face to face. And it's on that day that his life changed forever. In Genesis chapter 32, the passage we read today, we come to this part in the story which is really quite strange. It's a weird account of Jacob wrestling with a man all night until daybreak. Now the question that people often ask and that often arises from this passage is, who is this man that Jacob wrestles with? Well, theologians believe that this is the pre-incarnate Jesus. This is one of those appearances of the eternal Jesus in the Old Testament. And while it doesn't explicitly say Jesus' name, the passage does say that during that wrestle, Jacob saw God face to face. In Genesis 32, verse 25, it says, When the man, Jesus, saw that he could not overpower Jacob, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, Let me go, for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man asked him, What is your name? This is a really interesting question to ask. Because God knows everything. God knew his name. And so why would he ask him, What is your name? Well, I think God wanted Jacob to own who he was. He was a usurper. He was a swindler. He was a guy who lived up to the name that someone else had given him. The name that his parents had given him had defined his life. He'd been dishonest. And in key moments, he'd pretended to be someone else. And now when God asked him, the question is, will he own his name or will he pretend to be someone else? And perhaps for the first time, he does. He says, I am Jacob. It's not just my name. I've got to confront that it's also been my nature. The Gospel Project website says, doesn't this describe Jacob perfectly? The swindler had been wrestling with other people his entire life, and more importantly, he'd been wrestling with God. You see, each swindle was based on Jacob's lack of trust in the goodness of God. He didn't believe that God was good to provide, so he took Esau's birthright and Laban's best sheep. He didn't believe that God was good to bless, so he tricked Isaac for his blessing. So wrestling was God's way of laying Jacob's life bare before his own eyes. Jacob, this is who you have been. But the question is, but here's the question, is this who you want to continue to be? This is who you've been, but is this who you want to continue to be? I think there are times in all of our lives when we face a similar moment to this. We realise that perhaps for the first time that we've been living life a certain way and we've borne certain results as a result of that. And if we're honest with ourselves and if we have enough humility, in those times we need to self-reflect and hopefully be self-aware enough to ask the question, why does this keep happening? Why does this keep happening for Jacob? Why do these things keep happening for us? More importantly, do I want to live that way or do I want to experience something different 
something new? Do I want to change for growth? This was Jacob's moment, face to face with God himself. But perhaps today it's yours. Perhaps today it's mine. Maybe today is our moment. In verse 28 of the passage, says, Then Jesus said, Your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. Jacob said, Please tell me your name. But he replied, Why do you ask my name? Then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, It's because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. He didn't deserve for his life to be spared after everything he had done. And yet it was amazing grace that we find in Jesus that we see even in Jacob's life. In the Bible, it's always significant when God changes someone's name. Because when he changes their name, he actually changes their identity. He's saying, you have been this, but I will now make you something new. When we look at Abraham, or Abram, he changes Abram, Abram and he, he changed to Abraham. Abram means high father. God changed his name to a father of a multitude. This is what you have been, but this is what I am making you, Abraham. His wife, Sarai, was the same. Sarai means my princess. Sarah means mother of nations. This is what you've been. You've been my princess. You've been a high father, but now I'm changing your name. I'm changing your identity, and I'm altering your future. This is who I'm calling you to be. This is what you've been, but I'm changing your identity. This is a life and future defining moment. And this is what we see for Jacob. Jacob, you have been the supplanter, the usurper, the dishonest swindler. You have tripped up and overthrown people all of your life. You have lived up to your name. But after seeing God face to face, God declares you will no longer be that person. You will now be known as Israel, which means someone who has wrestled with and has prevailed with God. God changed his name. And in an instant, Change his identity. In our culture, we've already discussed that the names our parents give us are not always as significant as they were in Bible times. Sometimes they don't mean that much at all. But there are names and labels that other people can give us that can shape the way we see ourselves and how we live our lives. I was talking to a friend recently, and he was talking about his family. And he made the comment, we've always been people who don't follow through. It came from our dad, and now it's who we are. We talk a big game, but we don't do what we say we will. I realise in that moment that it's not just the name or the labels that other people give us. Sometimes it's the names and the labels that we give ourselves. You've probably seen envelopes or information sheets, and they say a fixed label here. You've got to peel the label off, and you've got to fix it in a certain place. Well, perhaps this morning that's what people have done to you. Perhaps this morning that's what you've done to yourself. You've taken a label, you've put it on, and you've become what that label says. Labels can be very sticky and very hard to get off. And even when they are pulled off, they can influence our lives. And when you pull a label off something, often there's a sticky residue and it's just annoying and inconvenient, even after the label's gone, because labels tend to stick. So maybe people have labeled you. You're hopeless. You'll never amount to anything. You're a bad influence, you're immature, you're ugly, you're rude, you're pathetic, you're a failure, you don't do enough, you're weird. Those labels are labels not only hurt, but they can stick. And so we start to believe them. So the question I want to ask this morning is this, I wonder if people have stuck labels on you? And if they have, how 
Have they impacted your life because you started to believe them? Today I want to remind you from our second reading in 2 Corinthians 5 that if you've accepted Jesus as Lord and Saviour of your life, you're not who you used to be and you're not defined by the labels that people try to put on you. You've had a defining moment face-to-face like Jacob with God. You've had a salvation experience and the Bible says you are a new creation in Christ. The old has gone and the new has come. When Jesus died on the cross, he took on all of our sin, all of our failures, all of our mistakes, all of our shortcomings. He took our shame and it was nailed to the cross with him. And with his arms stretched out wide, wide, he declared, it is finished. And so when we put in our faith in him, that defining moment in our life, that's his declaration over our past and over our sin and over our shame. He says, it is finished. And when we put our faith in him, that's his declaration over our lives. Jesus doesn't just give us a new name. He doesn't just give us a new identity. He doesn't just give us a different label. He makes us a completely new creation. That's the good news of the gospel, that you are a new creation in him. Jordan Peterson's recent best-selling book, 12 Rules for Life, rule number one is stand up straight with your head held high and your shoulders back. For him, it means to stop moping around making excuses, to know who you are and take responsibility for your life. It's psychological advice coming from a professional psychologist. But as Christians of all people, we should be able to stand up straight with our shoulders back and our head held high, not because of anything we've done, but because of what Christ did on our behalf. We know who we are in Christ. Our identity is secure in the knowledge that we are children of God. And so to my friend who thinks that we don't follow through because that's who we are, I'd say, no, that's who you used to be. You're not a quitter. You're an overcomer by the blood of the Lamb and the word of your testimony. You can do all things through Christ who gives you strength. You have the power of the Holy Spirit who helps you to persevere and to overcome no matter what you face in life. To those who would say, I'm rejected. Nobody loves me. Nobody cares. God would say, no, you're not rejected. You're accepted. I'll never leave you or forsake you. Jesus on the cross said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He said those words so that you and I will never have to. We're never alone. We're not rejected. We're received. We're accepted. We're part of the family of God in Christ. To those who say, I'm just a hopeless sinner. I keep making the same mistakes. God would say, no, that's what you used to be. You're now forgiven, righteous and holy. And while the devil will keep accusing, Jesus will keep defending on your behalf. You have the Holy Spirit with you and in you. He is holy and he is the Spirit. And the Spirit goes everywhere. So everywhere you go, you're holy because you have the Holy Spirit living in you. That's who you are. To those who think I'll never amount to anything, God says, I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. And that promise is yes and amen in Christ. This is the problem. A lot of Christians I know have accepted Christ, but they haven't assumed their new identity. Many Christians I know have accepted Christ, but they have yet to assume their new identity. They've asked Jesus into their lives, but they continue living like they haven't. So I want to ask you the question again this morning. Are you living the labels people have given you? Have you taken on board the names others have called you? Have you labelled yourself with your own words or your own self-defeating negative thoughts? Because people at various times will try to stick labels on all of us and they'll highlight your shortcomings 
And we've got to own those in those times. But our shortcomings don't define us. Our Saviour does. I'm going to invite the worship team forward now. And as they play and prepare to worship, instead of praying today, I'm going to read out some statements of truth from God's Word. You've been given a handout on the way in today. And you can pick it up and you can read along with me. I'm not going to read all of them, but I'll read a lot of them. I'm going to start from the back page and work my way in. But as I read these, I want you to allow the Word of God just to wash over you this morning. I want you to allow the Holy Spirit to speak to you about who you are in Christ. Not about who you were, but who you are. And as we read through these, some of them will be particularly important for you. You know what they are. The Holy Spirit will show you what they are. But today I pray that as I read these out, that God would do some healing, that God would do some thinking changing, and that God would um, remind you again of who your identity is in Christ. It's not what you were. It's who you are because of Him. So let me read some of those starting at the back page. I am blameless and free from accusation. Christ Himself is in me. I'm firmly rooted in Christ and now being built up in Him. I have been made complete in Christ. I've been buried, raised and made alive with Christ. I'm an expression of the life of Christ because He is my life. I am chosen of God, holy and dearly loved. I've been given a spirit of power, love and self-discipline. I've been set apart and saved according to God's doing. I'm a holy partaker of a heavenly calling. I have the right to come boldly before the throne of God to find mercy and grace in my time of need. I've been born again. I'm one of God's living stones being built up in Christ as a spiritual house. I've been given exceedingly great and precious promises by God by which I am a partaker of God's divine nature. I'm forgiven on account of Jesus' name. I'm anointed by God, I'm a child of God, and I will resemble Christ when He returns. I am loved. I am like Christ. I have life. I am born of God, and the evil one, the devil, cannot touch me. I have been redeemed. I've been healed. I'm the salt of the earth, I'm the light of the world. I am commissioned to make disciples. I'm a child of God. I have eternal life. I've been given peace. I am clean. I am Christ's friend. I've been justified, completely forgiven, and made righteous. I am free forever from condemnation. I'm a joint heir with Christ, sharing his inheritance with him. I am more than a conqueror through Christ who loves me and gives me strength. I have faith. I've been sanctified and called to holiness. I've been given grace in Christ Jesus. I've been placed into Christ by God's doing. I've received the Spirit of God into my life that I might know things freely given to me by God. I have been given the mind of Christ. I'm a temple, a dwelling place of God. His Spirit and His life dwell in me. I'm bought with a price. I'm not my own. I belong to God. I'm called. I'm a member of Christ's body. I am victorious through Jesus Christ. 
I'm being changed into the likeness of Christ. I've been crucified with him and it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I am now living is Christ's life. I'm God's workmanship. I'm no accident. I'm his handiwork born anew in Christ to do his work. I've been rescued from the domain of Satan's rule and transferred into the kingdom of Christ. I've been redeemed and forgiven of all my sins. The debt against me has been cancelled. I am a new creation. We are so blessed who we are because of what Jesus has done for us. I pray this week as you walk with him, as you walk into every circumstance of life, that you would walk with your shoulders back and your head held high knowing that you're a child of God and regardless of any other labels people try to put on you, just let them fall off in the power of the Holy Spirit knowing who you are and knowing that it's secure in him. We're going to stand and worship as we prepare our hearts to serve around communion. Thanks for listening to our message this week. If it stirred your heart and you would like to talk to someone more about it or pray with someone, please get in touch with us at info at follow.church and one of our pastoral team will get back to you as soon as possible. If you'd like more information about Follow and our various ministries, including weekly service times and location, please check out our website, www.follow.church. Thanks again for joining us. God bless.